where we are again at Fast Asleep and thank you. You must be ready for part two of the Body Snatcher. It's good, isn't it? I told you you'd be fine. All right, so our author, Robert Louis Stevenson, was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, in 1894. He was an only child, and he suffered from bronchial illnesses most of his life. As a matter of fact, he was very near death when he arrived in Monterey, California, beautiful Monterey, and local ranchers are said to have nursed him back to health as he stayed in the French Hotel on Houston Street in Monterey. Today, that hotel is a museum known as the Stevenson House. He later died at the age of 44 in Samoa. Interesting. Okay, let's finish this story. So, tuck in everybody and enjoy the conclusion of The Body Snatcher. Remember, Fetz had just spoken of someone possibly recognizing Jane Galbraith's body. And here McFarlane answers. We'll hope not, said McFarlane. And if anybody does, well, you didn't. Don't you see? And there's an end. The fact is, this has been going on too long. Stir up the mud and you'll get Kay into the most unholy trouble. You'll be in a shocking box yourself. So will I, if you come to that. I should like to know how any one of us would look, or what the devil we should have to say for ourselves in any Christian witness box. <sighs> for me, you know, there's one thing certain, that practically speaking, all our subjects have been murdered. McFarlane, cried Fetz. Oh, come on, sneered the other, as if you hadn't suspected it yourself. Oh, suspecting it is one thing, and proof another. Yes, I know, and I'm as sorry as you are. This should oh, have come here, tapping the body with his cane. The next best thing for me is just not to recognize it. And he added coolly, I don't. You may if you please. I don't dictate, but I think a man of the world would do as I do. And may I add, I fancy that is what Kay would look for at our hands. The question is, why did he choose us two for his assistance? And I answer, because he didn't want old wives. This was the tone of all others to affect the mind of a lad like Fetz. He agreed to imitate McFarlane. The body of the unfortunate girl was duly dissected, and no one remarked or appeared to recognize her. One afternoon, when his day's work was over, Fetz dropped into a popular tavern and found McFarlane sitting with a stranger. This was a small man, very pale and dark, with coal-black eyes. The cut of his features gave a promise of intellect 
and refinement, which was but feebly realized in his manners, for he proved, upon a nearer acquaintance, coarse, vulgar, and stupid. He exercised, however, a very remarkable control over Macfarlane, issued orders like the great Bashaw, a man of very high ranking, became inflamed at the least discussion or delay, and commented rudely on the servility with which he was obeyed. This most offensive person took a fancy to Fetz on the spot, plied him with drinks, honored him with unusual confidences on his past career. If a tenth part of what he confessed were true, he was a very loathsome rogue. And the lad's vanity was tickled by the attention of so experienced a man. I'm a pretty bad fellow myself, the stranger remarked. But McFarlane is the boy. Toddy McFarlane, I call him. Toddy, order your friend another glass. Or it might be, Toddy, you jump up and shut the door. Oh, Toddy hates me, he said again. Oh, yes, Toddy, you do. Don't call me that name, growled McFarlane. Hear him. Did you ever see the lads play knife? He would like to do that all over my body, remarked the stranger. We medicals have a better way than that, said Fetz. When we dislike a dead friend of ours, <laughs> we dissect him. McFarlane looked up sharply as though this jest were scarcely to his mind. The afternoon passed. Gray, for that, was the stranger's name, invited Fetz to join them at dinner, ordered a feast so sumptuous that the tavern was thrown into commotion, and when all was done, commanded McFarlane to settle the bill. It was late before they separated. The man Gray was incapably drunk. McFarlane, sobered by his fury, chewed the cud of the money he had been forced to squander and the slights he had been obliged to swallow. Fetz, with various liquors singing in his head, returned home with devious footsteps and a mind entirely in abeyance. Next day, McFarlane was absent from the class and Fetz smiled to himself as he imagined him still squiring the intolerable gray from tavern to tavern. As soon as the hour of liberty had struck, he posted from place to place in quest of his last night's companions. He could find them, however, nowhere. So he returned early to his rooms, went early to bed, and slept the sleep of the just. At four in the morning, he was awakened by the well-known signal. Descending to the door, he was filled with astonishment to find McFarlane with his gig, and in the gig, 
one of those long and ghastly packages with which he was so well acquainted. What? he cried. Have you been out alone? How did you manage? But McFarland silenced him roughly, bidding him turn to business. When they had got the body upstairs and laid it on the table, McFarlane made it first as if he were going away. Then he paused and seemed to hesitate. And then, You'd better look at the face, he said, in tones of some constraint. You had better, he repeated, as Fetz only stared at him in wonder. But where and how and when did you come by it? cried the other. Look at the face, was the only answer. Fetz was staggered. Strange doubts assailed him. He looked from the young doctor to the body and then back again. At last, with a start, he did as he was bidden. He had almost expected the sight that met his eyes, and yet the shock was cruel. To see, fixed in the rigidity of death, and naked on that coarse layer of sackcloth, the man whom he had left well clad and full of meat and sin upon the threshold of a tavern, awoke, even in the thoughtless fetes, some of the terrors of the conscience. It was cross tibi, meaning today me, tomorrow you, which re-echoed in his soul that two whom he had known should have come to lie upon these icy tables. Yet these were only secondary thoughts. His first concern regarded Wolf. Unprepared for a challenge so momentous, he knew not how to look his comrade in the face. He durst not meet his eye, and he had neither words nor voice at his command. It was McFarlane himself who made the first advance. He came up quietly behind and laid his hand gently but firmly on the other's shoulder. Richardson, he said, may have the head. Now, Richardson was a student who had long been anxious for that portion of the human subject to dissect. There was no answer, and the murderer resumed. Talking of business, you must pay me. Your accounts, you see, must tally. Fetz found a voice, the ghost of his own. Pay you, he cried. Pay you for that? Why, yes, of course, you must, by all means, and on every possible account you must, returned the other. I dare not give it for nothing. You dare not take it for nothing. It would compromise us both. 
This is another case like Jane Galbraith's. The more things are wrong, the more we must act as if all were right. Where does old K keep his money? There, answered Fitz, hoarsely, pointing to a cupboard in the corner. Give me the key, then, said the other, calmly, holding out his hand. There was an instant's hesitation, and ah, the die was cast. McFarlane could not suppress a nervous twitch, the infinitesimal mark of an immense relief as he felt the key between his fingers. He opened the cupboard, brought out pen and ink and a paper book that stood in one compartment, and separated from the funds in a drawer a sum suitable to the occasion. Now look here, he said. There is the payment made, first proof of your good faith, first step to your security. You have now to clinch it by a second. Enter the payment in your book, and then you, for your part, may defy the devil. The next few seconds were, for Fetz, an agony of thought. But in balancing his terrors, it was the most immediate that triumphed. Any future difficulty seemed almost un, almost welcome if he could avoid a present quarrel with McFarlane. He set down the candle, which he'd been carrying all this time, and with a steady hand entered the date, the nature, and the amount of the transaction. And now, said McFarlane, it's only fair that you should pocket the lucre, money gained dishonorably. I've had my share already. By the by, when a man of the world falls into a bit of luck, has a few shillings extra in his pocket. I'm ashamed to speak of it, but there's a rule of conduct in the case. No treating, no purchase of expensive class books, no squaring old debts, borrow. Don't lend. McFarlane, began Fetz, still somewhat hoarsely. I have put my neck in a halter to oblige you, to oblige me, cried Wolf. Oh, come, you did, as near as I can see the matter, what you downright had to do in self-defense. Suppose I got into trouble. Where would you be? This second little matter flows clearly from the first. Mr. Gray is the continuation of Miss Galbraith. You can't begin and then stop. If you begin, you must keep on beginning, and that's the truth. No rest for the wicked. A horrible sense of blackness and the treachery of fate seized hold upon the soul of the unhappy student. My God, he cried. But what could I have done? And when did I begin to be made a class assistant in the name of reason? Where's the harm in that? Service wanted the position. Service might have got it. 
Would he have been where I am now? My dear fellow, said McFarlane, what a boy you are. What harm has come to you? What harm can come to you if you hold your tongue? Why, man, do you know what this life is? There are two squads of us, the lions and the lambs. If you're a lamb, you'll come to lie upon these tables like Gray or Jane Galbraith. If you're a lion, you'll live and drive a horse like me, like Kay, like all the world with any wit or courage. You're staggered at the first, but look at Kay. My dear fellow, you're clever. You have pluck. I like you, and Mr. K likes you. You were born to lead the hunt, and I tell you on my honor and my experience of life, three days from now, you'll laugh at all these scarecrows like a high school boy at a farce. And with that, McFarland took his departure and drove off up the wind in his gig to get under cover before daylight. Fetz was thus left alone with his regrets. He saw the miserable peril in which he stood involved. He saw with inexpressible dismay that there was no limit to his weakness and that from concession to concession he had fallen from the arbiter of McFarland's destiny to his paid and helpless accomplice. He would have given the world to have been a little braver at the time, but it did not occur to him that he might still be brave. The secret of Jane Galbraith and the cursed entry in the day book closed his mouth. Hours passed. The class began to arrive. The members of the unhappy... The members of the unhappy Gray were dealt out to one and to another and received without remark. Richardson, hmm, Richardson, was made happy with the head, and before the hour of freedom rang, Fetz trembled with exultation to perceive how far they had already gone towards safety. For two days, he continued to watch with increasing joy the dreadful process of disguise. On the third day, McFarlane made his appearance. He had been ill, he said, but he made up for lost time by the energy with which he directed the students. To Richardson, in particular, he extended the most valuable assistance and advice, and that student, encouraged by the praise of the demonstrator, burned high with ambitious hopes and saw the medal already in his grasp. 
before the week was out, McFarland's prophecy had been fulfilled. Fetz had outlived his terrors and had forgotten his baseness. He began to plume himself upon his courage and had so arranged the story in his mind that he could look back on these events with an unhealthy pride. Of his accomplice, he saw but little. Oh, they met, of course, in the business of the class. They received their orders together from Mr. K. At times, they had a word or two in private, and McFarlane was from first to last particularly kind and jovial. But it was plain that he avoided any reference to their common secret. And even when Fetz whispered to him that he had cast in his lot with the lions and forsworn the lambs. He only signed to him smilingly to hold his peace. At length, an occasion arose which threw the pair once more into a closer union. Mr. K was again short of subjects. Pupils were eager, and it was a part of this teacher's pretensions to be always well supplied. At the same time, there came the news of a burial in the rustic graveyard of Glencourse. Time has little changed the place in question. It stood then, as now, upon a crossroad out of call of human habitations, and buried fathom deep in the foliage of six cedar trees. The cries of the sheep upon the neighboring hills, the streamlets upon either hand, one loudly singing among the, among the pebbles, the other dripping furtively from pond to pond. The stir of the wind in mountainous old flowering chestnuts, and once in seven days, the voice of the bell and the old tunes of the presenter, the choir leader, were the only sounds that disturbed the silence around that rural church. The Resurrection Man, to use a byname of the period, was not to be deterred by any of the sanctities of customary piety. It was part of his trade to despise and desecrate the scrolls and trumpets of old tombs, the paths worn by the feet of worshippers and mourners, and the offerings and the inscriptions of bereaved affection. To rustic neighborhoods where love is more than commonly ten tenacious and where some bonds of blood or fellowship unite the entire society of a parish. The body snatcher, far from repelled by natural respect, was attracted by the ease and safety of the task. To bodies that had been laid in earth in joyful expectation of a far different awakening there came that hasty, lamp-lit, terror 
haunted resurrection of the spade and the mattock. Another digging tool. The coffin was forced, the cerements torn, shroud, and the melancholy relics clad in sackcloth after being rattled for hours on moonless byways were at length exposed to uttermost indignities before a class of gaping boys. Somewhat as two vultures may swoop upon a dying lamb, Fetz and McFarlane were to be let loose upon a grave in that green and quiet resting place. The wife of a farmer, a woman who had lived for 60 years and had been known for nothing but good butter and a godly conversation was to be rooted from her grave at midnight and carried dead and naked to that faraway city that she had always honored with her Sunday's best. The place beside her family was to be empty till the crack of doom. Her innocent and almost venerable members to be exposed to that last curiosity of the anatomist. Late one afternoon, the pair set forth, well wrapped in cloaks and furnished with a formidable bottle. It rained without remission, a cold, dense, lashing rain. Now and again there blew a puff of wind, but these sheets of falling water kept it down, bottle and all. It was a sad and silent drive, as far as Pennycrick, where they were to spend the evening. They stopped once to hide their implements in a thick bush not far from the churchyard, and once again at the fisher's tryst to have a toast before the kitchen fire and vary their nips of whiskey with a glass of ale. When they reached their journey's end, the gig was housed, the horse was fed and comforted, and the two young doctors in a private room sat down to the best dinner and the best wine the house afforded. The lights, the fire, the beating rain upon the window, the cold incongruous work that lay before them, added zest to their enjoyment of the meal with every glass their cordiality increased. Soon McFarlane handed a little pile of gold to his companion. A compliment, he said, between friends, these little D.D. accommodations ought to fly like pipe lights. Fetz pocketed the money and applauded the sentiment to the echo. You are a philosopher, he cried. I was an ass till I knew you. You and Kay between you, oh, by the Lord Harry, but you'll make a man of me. Of course we shall, applauded McFarlane. A man, I tell you, it required a man to back me up the other morning. There are some big, brawling, 40-year-old cowards 
who would have turned sick at the look of the DD thing. But not you. You kept your head. I watched you. Huh. Well, and why not? Fetz thus vaunted himself. It was no affair of mine. There was nothing to gain on the one side but disturbance. And on the other? Well, I could count on your gratitude. <laughs> Don't you see? And he slapped his pocket till the gold pieces rang. McFarlane somehow felt a certain touch of alarm at these unpleasant words. He may have regretted that he had taught his young companion so successfully, but he had no time to interfere, for the other noisily continued in this boastful strain, the great thing is not to be afraid. Now, between you and me, I don't want to hang. <laughs> now that's practical. But for all can't, McFarlane, I was born with a contempt. Hell, God, devil, right, wrong, sin, crime, and all the old gallery of curiosities. They may frighten boys, but men of the world like you and me despise them. So here's to the memory of Gray. It was by this time growing somewhat late. The gig, according to order, was brought round to the door with both lamps brightly shining, and the young men had to pay their bill and take the road. They announced that they were bound for Peebles and drove in that direction till they were clear of the last houses of the town. Then, extinguishing the lamps, returned upon their course and followed a by-road toward Glen Course. There was no sound but that of their own passage and the incessant strident pouring of the rain. It was pitch dark. Here and there a white gate or a white stone in the wall guided them for a short space across the night, but for the most part it was at a foot pace and almost groping that they picked their way through that resonant blackness to their solemn and isolated destination. In the sunken woods that traversed the neighborhood of the burying ground, the last glimmer failed them, and it became necessary to kindle a match and re-illume one of the lanterns of the gig. Thus, under the dripping trees and environed by huge and moving shadows, they reached the scene of their unhallowed labors. They were both experienced in such affairs and powerful with the spade, and they had scarce been twenty minutes at their task before they were rewarded by a dull rattle on the coffin lid. At the same moment, McFarlane, having hurt his hand upon a stone, flung it carelessly above his head. The grave, in which they now stood, almost to the shoulders, was close to the edge of the plateau of the graveyard, and the gig lamp had been propped, the better to illuminate their labors, against a tree. 
and on the immediate verge of the steep bank descending to the stream. Chance had taken a sure aim with the stone. Then came a clang of broken glass. Night fell upon them. Sounds alternately dull and ringing announced the bounding of the lantern down the bank and its occasional collision with the trees. A stone or two which it had dislodged in its descent rattled behind it into the profundities of the glen. And then silence like night resumed its sway and they might bend their hearing to its utmost pitch, but not was to be heard, except the rain, now marching to the wind, now steadily falling over miles of open country. They were so nearly at an end of their abhorred task that they judged it wisest to complete it in the dark. The coffin was exhumed and broken open. The body inserted in the dripping sack and carried between them to the gig. One mounted to keep it in its place and the other, taking the horse by the mouth, groped along by wall and bush until they reached the wider road by the fisher's tryst. Here was a faint and diffused radiancy which they hailed like daylight, but that they pushed the horse. With that, they pushed the horse to a good pace and began to rattle along merrily in the direction of the town. They had both been wetted to the skin during their operations, and now, as the gig jumped among the deep ruts, the thing that stood propped between them fell, now upon one and now upon the other. At every repetition of the horrid contact, each instinctively repelled it with the greater haste. And the process, natural although it was, began to tell upon the nerves of the companions. McFarlane made some ill-favored jest about the farmer's wife, but it, it came hollowly from his lips and was allowed to drop in silence. Still, their unnatural burden bumped from side to side, and now the head would be laid, as if in confidence, upon their shoulders. And now the drenching sackcloth would flap icily about their faces. A creeping chill began to possess the soul of Fetz. He peered at the bundle, and it seemed somehow larger than at first. All over the countryside, and from every degree of distance, the farm dogs 
accompanied their passage with tragic ululations, howling, and it grew and grew upon his mind that some unnatural miracle had been accomplished, that some nameless change had befallen this dead body, and that it was in fear of their unholy burden that the dogs were howling. Ah, for God's sake, said he, making a great effort to arrive at speech. For God's sake, let's have a light. Seemingly, MacFarlane was affected in the same direction, for though he made no reply, he stopped the horse, passed the reins to his companion, got down and proceeded to kindle the remaining lamp. They had, by that time, got no farther than the crossroad down to Auchenclinny. The rain still poured as though the deluge were returning, and it was no easy matter to make a light in such a world of wet and darkness. Well, when at last the flickering blue flame had been transferred to the wick and began to expand and clarify and shed a wide circle of misty brightness round the gig, it became possible for the two young men to see each other and the thing they had along with them. The the rain had molded the rough sacking to the outlines of the body underneath. The head was distinct from the trunk. The shoulders plainly modeled. Something at once spectral and human riveted their eyes upon the ghastly comrade of their drive. For some time, McFarland stood motionless, holding up the lamp. A nameless dread was swathed like a wet sheet about the body and tightened the white skin upon the face of Fetz. A fear that was meaningless a horror of what could not be kept mounting to his brain. Another beat of the watch, and he had spoken. But his comrade forestalled him. That is not a woman, said McFarlane. It was a woman when we put her in, whispered Fetz. Hold that lamp, said the other. I must see her face. And as Fetz took the lamp, his companion untied the fastenings of the sack and drew down the cover from the head. The light fell very clear upon the dark, well-molded features and smooth-shaven cheeks of a too familiar countenance, often beheld in dreams of both of these young men. 
A wild yell rang up into the night. Each leaped from his own side into the roadway. The lamp fell, broke, and was extinguished, and the horse, terrified by this unusual commotion, bounded and went off toward Edinburgh at a gallop, bearing along with it, sole occupant of the gig, the body of the dead, and long dissected gray. <laughs>